Good evening. You are listening to the Year Now podcast. Today is Wednesday, the 10th of January, 2024. I'm Craig, and joining us this evening is um, Bronwyn. Kiora. And Mark. Hey. And we have a special guest from the committee, Louise. Hi there. So it's 2024, a whole new year. How was everybody's summer? Or, Hot. Uh, like, like uh, sorry, I said that like summer was now over, but actually we're in right the middle of it. So, it's it's hot here in Wellington at the moment, which is nice. No, I'm hating Wellington on a good day. I need some, <laughs> I am a pale girl and I need to do some running and it is just blistering sun. It's it's a miserable experience. Um, but as someone who also does like cyanotype printing, it's great for my photography. Just terrible for my, you know, physical health. Okay. You can never send me to the seaside for the good of my health. I'd mm-hmm. suffer. Well, it's well, nice and warm it... here too. Sorry, Louise, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to yeah, say that it is hot here in, in Auckland and it's damn hot. And in three weeks' time, I'm going to be swapping that for minus 15 in Oslo, apparently. So wow, that's going to be quite a, a shock. Yeah, one extreme to the other. So I had Mormons come round again today, my uh, my regular visit or becoming more regular. Four of them turned up today. Um, a party, a party. And dressed to the nines, like the full on, you know, white shirt trousers for the two guys and dresses for the two girls. Oh, oh you just, had a double date. I did have a double had date. A sneaky with- double date. Four Mormons at once. We sat in, on the deck in my house, but it was still pretty damn warm. And I just felt sorry for them. Like I couldn't even offer them a, a nice. Well, I suppose I could offer them a Diet Coke because I did learn when I talked to the last set that apparently Diet Coke is OK, despite having caffeine in it. Um, but, yeah, I gave them a water and spent two hours grilling them, um, which was really good fun. And, yeah, they left, I think, um, happy to come back for more. So we'll have to see when they visit me again. I need to know, know more details because I'm wondering if you were a chaperone and you didn't even know it. Like, were they all sort of the similar age or were they mixed ages? Mainly the same age. So a lot of them are like, you know, 18, 19. One guy said he joined the church a little bit late. So he was uh, like maybe three years older. But I apparently the guys have a car. The girls don't. And I was like, oh, you can just give them a lift. And they're like, no, we can't give them a lift. They're not allowed in the same car. As us. And I'm like, well, how about you just be chivalrous and give them your car? And it was like, no, we're not allowed to do that either. So apparently the guys get the car and the women aren't allowed to ride in it because something untoward might happen. And they're not allowed to take over use of the car either. So they had like an hour's walk after they left me. They walked an hour to get to me. And then their next appointment was an hour's walk away again. It's crazy. I wonder if this is how they make um, the missions really unsustainable or, you know, unattractive for then the female or the sisters, Mm. the female elders. I thought Mormons always showed up on bikes. Yeah. (laughs) Granted, this is Wellington. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of hills here. So bikes are probably even worse than walking. Um, Well, well, I'm going to rain on this parade, and I think Mark was a chaperone for a secret double date. (laughs) (laughs) This is my theory. Right. So I made it it legitimate, but actually the two couples just wanted to see each other. Or else Mm. there's one couple and they each brought their own chaperone, and then you were the third, the the neutral party. You were the the setup. (sighs) 
maybe yes, two layers of chaperoning, but but in the end, the um, the two lovers got to see each other across a table, and that was enough. But not over an illicit diet coke. <laughs> no, not over the diet coke. Although, as I said, somehow they're allowed diet coke apparently, even though it's got caffeine in. Mm. But they're not sure about caffeine-free coffee, whether that's okay, which is boggles the mind. Who knows what be. Joseph Smith meant when he talked about not allowing hot drinks? Mm. It would be interesting just, to know how much that, how much sort of dating actually goes on um, when they're on missions illicitly, whether they take their mission seriously enough to to not be uh, tempted by another person. I'm not going to say the opposite sex because it could be the same sex. Well, so. we all hear about these, like you know, these urban legends about soaking and then the hmm. bed jumping you know those sort of mormon sex urban legends so i mean you know for them to sort of come up with these maybe semi-convoluted uh secret dates i don't know hmm. it seems a little bit more reasonable than you know soaking or jumping on the bed <laughs> would you like to explain what those two are Brahman? because i know but our audience might not do I don't know. I think you did a really good time of explaining soaking last time, so I'm happy for you to mm. repeat no, your succinct definition. Yeah, well, <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll leave it. We'll, we'll let someone go back to a previous episode if I've already described it. Or they can look it up on Google. <laughs> or I might go away and just put on the Osman's greatest hits. <laughs> I guess we should get some topics started. Um, so uh, in the latest newsletter I wrote about uh, basically put in a book review when we had the conference, we had uh, Melanie here, and she recommended a book to me, uh, which was uh, How Minds Change, The Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion by David McRaney. Um, and so I'm not a particularly fast reader, or, or I don't find a huge amount of time to read, but it took me basically from when Melanie and Anthony arrived in the country before the conference, so that was early November until probably uh, mid or late December to finish the book. But anyway, I, I got through it. But it is a, I think it's a, a really good book. It's, um, it's it provides a lot of interesting stuff about how um, how to change people's minds, um, and it's not necessarily just about skepticism. Um, so one of the first things they they talk about in it is this technique called deep canvassing. The, the idea, I think, of canvassing is think, something they use in political campaigns where you send people out to talk to people um, and basically try and persuade them to vote for your particular political party or candidate. I'm not sure how common it is here in New Zealand. Do you, you guys got any opinions on that? I mean, I know that people do knock on doors and, and talk about political things, but... I've I never had it... Never had it happen to me over here. It was a frequent thing in the UK. I mean, so frequent, you know, even on the Isles of Scilly, out in the Atlantic Ocean, it used to happen. In fact, my mother used to do canvassing for right. um, one of the political parties in the UK. So, yeah, it, it happens quite a lot in the UK, but never had it in, what, 17, 18 years in this country? Yeah, mm. I, I never experienced it. But at the same time, I spent quite a bit of my time as an adult in New Zealand uh, living in military bases, so I don't think a lot of political campaigners would have had access to uh, <laughs> right. uh, officer housing. But again, you know, no longer living in military housing, I never experienced it. Like, But I also hmm. live sort of in a part of Lower Hut where, uh, you know, there's a high gang presence, so maybe it's just not a place that would be very attractive <laughs> to politicians. Are you in a gang, Bronwyn? I'm in the skeptics gang. <laughs> <laughs> we just wait here. <laughs> 
so, so deep canvassing is where they're sending people out and spending quite a lot of time talking to people and trying to change their minds about social issues, um, co perhaps controversial social issues. So one of the, the major things in this in this chapter in the book is they're talking about sending people out to talk to people to change their minds about voting, um, say, against uh, legalizing same-sex marriage. Uh, so particularly in the states, they have these um, states have these elections where they can change their constitution, they can make it legal to have same-sex marriage or illegal to have same-sex marriage, or or they can perhaps vote on uh, women's uh, reproductive health rights and so on. So what they're doing is they're sending people out and the technique of deep canvassing is where they're spending a lot of time with people and basically getting prompting them to relate an experience that then um, sort of attaches itself to the the issue at hand. And so particularly in, say, the uh, LGBT rights um, example, I guess it's a lot of it is about making people feel, feel othered or feel that they're not worthwhile. Um, and so what they're doing is they're essentially prompting people to trying to come up with some experience where they felt like they were an outsider. And that tends to work by shifting their opinions um, and softening them on the way they might vote uh, in one of these uh, propositions to change the constitution. So I've, I found that quite interesting, but I'm not sure how well it, how well it would apply to changing people's minds about skeptical issues, like whether they believe in, in Bigfoot or whether we went to the moon or, um, or evolution creation. I'm not sure whether you can use that sort of technique um, for that sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, um, so one of the themes that ran through the book was this guy, um, Charlie Veach, um, who is a UK-based influencer, uh, shouty man on YouTube. Um, Mark, are you aware of him? I am, but I'm aware of him from um, the Conspiracy Road Trip TV yes. show that you mentioned in your book review. So I watched that many years ago when it first came out. So I was yeah, aware so of him from that. He annoyed me then. Um, uh, I don't know. There's something about him that, yeah. And an interesting story soon after that, that he had changed his mind. But mm. um, yeah, he just seems like a very abrasive character. Yeah, so he was a 9-11 truther. Um, he sort of formed a community around that in the UK, um, and he put his prolific YouTube video uh, creator, putting out videos all the time. And so he had all these people that um, he was trying to educate about the uh, that 9-11 was an inside job and so on. And so there was this BBC program called Conspiracy Road Trip, as he mentioned, where they grabbed a whole bunch of conspiracy theorists and took them on a road trip to talk to people about their conspiracy theories. And from what I understand, he was the only one who actually um, changed his mind. So they introduced these conspiracy theorists um, to people who could talk to them about the evidence uh, ag against their conspiracy. Um, and so in the example of the 9-11 uh, truther movement, so Charlie Veach got introduced to people who were experts in explosives and, and demolition and architects of buildings. And he got introduced to the, the first responders and um, I think victims families, families as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. People's families. And so that, that 
caused him to essentially have this epiphany that he was wrong. Um, and that kind of went down, did not go down well with his community. They all uh, started attacking him um, because he had betrayed them. Having a look at his YouTube videos, I kind of wonder whether he was just latching on to something that would gain him popularity. And um, now he's attacking trans people in the UK and attacking uh, councils and <laughs> the police and yeah, anything to get eyeballs on his YouTube videos. Yeah. And I'm generally suspicious when someone goes from full on woo to full on skeptic. Um, you know, it's like if you've been so happy to lie for the other side, like I just I worry there's a potential for you to lie for skepticism as well, that you don't care so much about the truth as you just you pick a cause and you'll do whatever it takes. There are exceptions like Brit Marie um, Hermes that was yeah. a naturopath, and but she was never loud and proud as a homeopath. She always seemed to be quite skeptical and unsure. And then, you know, the final there was the straw that broke the camel's back and she became a full-on skeptic but yeah i think there have been some examples before where people have come into skepticism where it's like actually i don't think i want them in skepticism they just they seem like very divisive characters who like their argumentative style just doesn't feel right i'm yeah. kind of it kind of recalls something similar that's happened in the anti-mlm movement but this happened a couple of years ago there was a youtuber called kimberlea and her main business was selling cell phone cases. But she kind of got into that, you know, early pandemic trend of YouTube videos in the multi-level marketing, in the anti-multi-level marketing space of just, you know, reading off posts that people were making on Reddit. You know, people were doing <laughs> like, you know, mocking, you know, people who were, you know, so quote unquote, makeup artists with um, various different MLMs. And then it came out that she caused a bit of drama amongst some MLM person, anti MLM personalities. But more importantly, she joined an MLM herself. <laughs> she joined Monet. Oh, or oh, no. She picked a big one. Yeah, she did. I don't know if she ended up sticking around with it. But now, you know, despite these, maybe at least two big genre changes, she now apparently has a really popular channel doing a true crime. <laughs> Oh, so she's wow. part of that stream. <laughs> so I think you'll actually probably see quite a lot of people, like particularly if they have that social media profile, they're jumping all the time to whatever's making them money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, so back to the book. Um, it covers a whole bunch of things. It d delves in fairly deeply into the theories about how people actually make up their minds and what it means to make up your mind and how how minds actually change. Um, there's actually some fairly good uh, theories about things called cas cascades, about how um, it just takes sort of in people who are kind of influencers uh, who maybe are early adopters of, of an idea and that can spread and basically you get a cascade of changes of people's minds in, in one direction. So I found that quite interesting. Um, it covers the um, the blue, black, or white and gold dress, um, which was an internet sensation a little while ago. Um, interestingly, what, what team are you guys on? Are you on the blue, black dress or the yellow, gold dress? Or oh, white and gold, sorry. I was in the, that photo always looked a little bit sketchy. <laughs> Yes. Like that yes. gold never looked right, but I, you know, I wouldn't have never been able to say it was black and blue, but you know, the part that looked gold looked so strange. I'm like that someone's messed around a little bit in Photoshop. 
Well, yes, I, and I think the explanation for that is that the lighting is ambiguous. And so when your brain sees the lighter color, it for me, it looks blue, but it could easily just be white um, in that the, the color balance is off. I'm looking at it now and it still looks blue and black to me. But. So I I was team blue and black. And when I came to putting the newsletter together the other day, I looked at it and it was blue and black about 2 p.m. I came back to the newsletter about maybe 9, 10 p.m. And it looked gold to me. Yeah. Like in the I don't know whether it was the change of lighting around me or just the time that I'd walked away from. But I couldn't shake that I was seeing gold. You haven't um, got one of those. um uh uh, operating system features that changes the uh, the amount of blue in your screen no, over time. Have you? No, no, because that whole blue light <laughs> thing is total pseudo scientific twaddle. So it, whenever they like, there's one I think on my Mac by default, and I've turned it off because it's just so much nonsense. So no, it was the same monitor, same brightness of the monitor. I don't think it's got adaptive brightness, but the lights around me would have changed from natural sunlight to LED lights. Uh, set to a warm white so i wonder whether that was different i don't know maybe mm. that's what caused it but yeah i was i was really fascinated to see that i could clearly see the was it golden white um mm. that evening where in the daytime it was blue and black and looking at it now it's back to blue and black for me hmm yeah it's interesting it's a really similar I- dress and it's absolutely white and gold <laughs> oh okay absolutely <laughs> always ah. all right Absolutely cannot see how anybody sees blue or black in there. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Um, so the book also covers street epistemology that we've talked about a few times in the past. Yeah, I have opinions and... about that, but carry on. <laughs> it, it it gives a pretty good review um, and it sort of spends a bit of time going through the, the actual process. Um, t- to me, I think it's... It needs a fair bit of setup. You need to be committed. It's not something you can casually do. Um, so for for the uninitiated, street epistemology essentially is where somebody's standing out on the street. They basically are going to approach strangers and say to them, um, would you like to have a discussion about um, a, a claim that you believe is true and then you essentially engage them and you explore together the reasons why they believe this and how firmly they believe it on say a numerical scale of zero to a hundred or zero to ten or something and then you you try and engage them and say well actually why why aren't you more certain about this or or what so you kind of explore these reasons as to why they believe things and then actually um Asking those questions, you're getting people to reflect on why they actually believe the thing that they believe, and that often sort of plants a seed as to maybe the the reasons they believe something is actually not necessarily good reasons. So when I first heard about street epistemology, I, I liked the idea at first listen. Then when I heard some of the details of how it's done, it made me concerned because it feels contrived. It feels like you're kind of duplicitous you're you're planning how to change someone's mind and you know that forethought and planning doesn't feel honest to the person you're using it on but more than that whenever i've watched it on youtube and i've been given you know i've even been at an event where we've we've run videos of here are the exemplars here are the best youtube videos of people using it successfully 
it just comes across as creepy and i yeah i really don't like it it doesn't seem to be successful and it just feels really wrong hmm okay interesting and i can't um, get over that you know it, it does feel like street evangelizing it it feels like you know the the opposite side of the coin to the people out there trying to convert people to their religion i guess it could feel predatory in that you're pouncing on people to try and get them to yeah and it changed not- their minds about something it, it, and generally people who do it have got this kind of agenda that perhaps they want to criticize religion and this is a means of doing that yeah and it's not always the street i mean the ones i've seen you know out on a walk in the hills and this guy just started talking oh, sure. with some people sure, but yes. it's like it's their own time or in the pub and you start talking to them in the pub but it always feels like you're you're pushing yourself onto somebody when it's their free time that they're enjoying themselves. And that generally seems to be how it is. I think I much prefer it if someone comes to me and wants to talk to me, and then I'm happy to engage. But the idea of me going out and actively looking for people to challenge, that doesn't feel good. Mm, Sure. Yeah. Um, I I think it may well depend upon the setting and a lot of the stuff um, that they're doing is on university campuses which I guess is is a place where people are going to have their idealist challenged, perhaps. So maybe it's a little more relevant in that kind of setting. But again, it sounds no better than uh, Cliff Canigli, whatever his name is, and um, Ray Comfort, who do the same trick, <laughs> right? These these evangelists that go onto campuses and at like 50, 60 years old, they bash 89-year-olds with their experience. It doesn't mean they've got the answers, but they're more experienced at arguing and they always come off looking better. And it's it's mm. nutting to see those things. Well, yes, I guess. Although we we know the kind of techniques that Ray, the current Ray Compass of the world deploy and that they are asking gotcha questions. They're not uh, sort of honestly um, exploring a topic together. Um, I guess so. I guess that's just perception from from our side, perhaps. And I'd mm. also say we all, you know, with Ray Comfort, of course, it's the benefits of editing. We're really only seeing the successful or semi-successful mm. ones. We're never seeing, sure. you know, the hundred, the you know, the hundred fails. Mm. How do we know it's any different with street epistemology? How do we know that you know the ones we're seeing on YouTube aren't the one percent that look best, and that? These well, atheists are deleting the rest of them. Well, uh, as is reported in the book, um, they talk about when. So, the, so the guy who sort of invented this approach, Anthony Magnabosco, he actually goes out and he actually does live streams of the street epistemology sessions, and that, so there are people in the community who are basically logging on at the time, listening to it happen live, and providing him the feedback afterwards as to as to what he could have done better and and so on. So I think um, p- perhaps uh, your idea that he you're only seeing the best of them um, might not necessarily at, be accurate. at least for that stream. Yeah, that sound yeah. that sounds a bit better. Even so, again, pretty weird that you know you'll think you're talking to someone, but actually there's like twenty or thirty people. <laughs> yeah, there's an earpiece in your ear, and you're actually <laughs> you're talking to a, a hive mind. <laughs> yeah, the odds are stacked against you at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, probably about six months ago now, I think we had somebody submitted an article to the newsletter that reviewed the street epistemology book and uh, reported about it uh, uh, quite yep. quite favorably and I inserted a um, an editor's note in there uh, saying because I think 
Peter Bogosian was mentioned. And Peter Bogosian is a bit of a controversial figure. Um, so I was actually quite uh, and so the the that author who uh, had the the topic to go in the newsletter, I think, came back to me and said, Oh, why did you do that? Um and and was a bit upset about it. Uh, but I was I was chuffed to read in the book that uh, Peter Bogosian actually comes under a bit of uh, criticism in the book. Um, and so I'll just read the quote. It says, After six years and hundreds of conversations, Anthony said his anger had subsided. Like many militant atheists who met online in the 2000s, he and others in the street epistemology community had distanced themselves from controversial figures like Richard Dawkins and even Peter Bogosian, who had taken to social media to complain about social justice warriors. So, um, yes, when I looked up Peter Bogosian using street epistemology, he was essentially using it to attack trans people. <laughs> so Ow. I didn't think that was oh, a very, very, good, uh, very good use of it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think uh, the book is worth reading for sceptics. Um, it yeah, contains a lot of quite interesting material. Um, and uh, David McRaney has this uh, podcast called You Are Not So Smart. And it's uh, yet another podcast that I should get around to reading, uh, listening to, but uh, have yet to. So, yeah, yeah, I've I've tried it. I think I've listened to one episode. It wasn't my cup of tea, but it might well be yours. Hmm. And so, Bronwyn, I hear that you've been reading a book over summer or some books over summer as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I finished one and the other one's sort of midway. Um, the first book I read was Shadow Worlds by Andrew Paul Wood and you know, and I and I got Mark a copy for his birthday. Uh, it is sitting right unread. next to my bed, totally unread. unread. Yep. <laughs> yeah, unread. Um, and basically, it's really it's the history of occult and the esoteric and esoteric practices in New Zealand, but it does sort of have a very, uh, very strong focus on theosophy, um, the Golden Dawn, particularly how it relates to Havelock North. Uh, but there's little tiny bits that, like, you know, little bits of um, Builders of the Adatome, which is kind of a nice little rare treat that to have in a book like this, because no one really talks about Boda. Um, also a little bit about Zap. Uh, but don't think that this is going to be a book that looks into, like, the modern cults, um, such as Ista or Gloria Vale or Centerpoint. That isn't the purview. This is going purely for the more occult um, theosophy sort of um, early settler belief systems. And, it, yeah, it's just a nice... I, I really enjoyed it. Lots of really great dates and really good ideas for maybe another three or four years worth of skeptics articles for me, particularly in terms of <laughs> intentional communities and co and other communes that have um, sort of faltered and failed over the years. Um, but he's, he's it's, it's, it's also a sensitive read in the sense that he doesn't really go into Chinese immigrant beliefs, particularly of the gold um, in terms of the gold rush that we had back in the um, 1800s, nor does he explore too deeply into uh, Maori um, practices, except when Maori individuals figure or are interested in, say, theosophy or early spiritualism. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there, it has a pretty interesting final chapter, and this is kind of the part where Zap came into the came into it because he's sort of talking about, you know, the UFO a little bit about the UFO groups as well as more the neo pagan right wing nationalist front that we have in New Zealand led by Kerry Bolton. And there's a whole strain of paganism that we kind mm. of don't, we don't, we haven't really actually explored on either the podcast or in the newsletter that you know that combination of Odinism and racism. 
No, we did have a good talk that I think mentioned Kerry Bolton a couple of years ago at our yeah, conference yeah. in Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, and he seemed to be the shadowy figure behind a lot of the right wing stuff that goes on in New Zealand. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and I guess, you know, if you if anyone, maybe nobody who's listening to the podcast at the moment of our dozens of listeners, but um, if you have read Islands of the Dawn, which was by Robert S. Elwood, then absolutely getting Shadow Worlds is an absolute a recommend buy for me if you are interested into this early, certainly the early history of New Zealand spiritual beliefs mm-hmm. that are Christian. <laughs> um, but what it does lack compared to Robert's, Robert Elwood's book is that it what Robert did at the end of his book was start to write little tiny paragraphs about all the different sort of fringe groups that are that were practicing at the in the 90s. And that's how I came across like Adi Dam. Um, Andrew doesn't do this. Um, and I don't think he needs to. That's not the point of this book. This book is really trying to pick apart what um, what was going through and what was sort of motivating and drawing early spiritual practices in New Zealand. So tracing the roots and the connections between the groups kind of thing. Yeah, well, less maybe less connection between the groups, but the, but the, the threads are strong, particularly because you know it's talking. There's lots about spiritualism and what, how spiritualism sort of grew and changed within New Zealand. And Bronwyn, you've not only been reading uh, books over the Christmas period; you've been to the National Archives, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have indeed. I've just been hanging out there. I'm just trying to find some new things for upcoming articles. I am. I am looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Secret projects. Cool. But um, just sort of an FYI for people who might be interested, the book I have, I'm reading, in the process of reading, is Rebecca Priestley's new release, End Times. Um, You know, it's a little bit about, you know, being a scientist or, you know, scientific academic, hanging out with an engineering friend or traveling around the West Coast. And this is kind of like mid-pandemic, you know, sort of the lockdowns have just stopped in Auckland. So lots of really tough feelings and tough conversations that they're having across the West Coast. All the while, it's intercut with this tales or sort of a story about how her and her friend, you know, started off as punks in Wellington and then became uh, born-again Christians or, you know, started going through the youth groups and going into that, how how they changed their friends, how they changed their practices and beliefs. Um, So I'm interested in seeing how they got out of that. Speaking of um, cults and weird religions in New Zealand, um, at Skeptics in the Pub last night, somebody was telling me about the weird church that Christopher Luxon, our new prime minister, belongs to. And it is, it's a it's a church I'd never heard of before. And I can't for the life of me remember what it was now, but I, I'm sure somebody can can remind me if I contact somebody from Skeptics in the Pub. But it was, um, you go to their website and they say, well, you can come along and introduce yourself to the church. So that might be so was the exercise. Upper Room Church? Ah, the Upper Room. Yes, yes. What do you know about them? Nothing. I just did a Google search for it. I couldn't remember oh, what the you? name was. Oh, so well, I, I, I Googled it, it and I could not find that. So, okay. Uh, yeah. You probably so... wrote Luxton, not Luxon in your search, didn't you? No, Christopher <laughs> Luxon Church is what I googled. All right, <laughs> it's I, I, just it be... for, I was Chris Luxon Church. I went short, and okay. it worked. Okay, right. it's on his Wikipedia page. Well, it's right. interesting that oh. you're mentioning the Upper Room Church because I mean, Chris, Christopher Luxon's, you know, his 
the flavor of his Christian Christianity, um, I don't know if it's, it's maybe the flavor of it is what's for, is up for question, but maybe not that he is Christian is up for question. There was a really interesting article done by Tova O'Brien back in October, um, because I think it was revealed that he had was involved and was part of some promotional material for this Christian ranch um, called J.H. Aotearoa, which is kind of a family adventure campground. It's, um, that has a very strong Christian focus, but it's connected to a an American outfit that is very, very clear about their opinions about, you know, marriages for, you know, who who can get married. So Wikipedia says in 2021, he said he'd not attended a church for five or six years. So I guess he started off going to the upper room when he came back to New Zealand, but didn't last too long. Mm, right. Okay, Apparently. That's interesting because in 2015, he and he can be seen smile. According to his article by Tova O'Brien that I'm reading, Luxon appears in video highlights reel from 2015. He can be seen smiling while whitewater rafting on a father and son experience. So potentially, maybe he didn't go to a church, but he certainly was involved in sort of Christian culture. Okay. Hmm. Well, it might be something interesting to investigate in the future. Mm. Do you want to read what um, LC American, the JH Ranch in California, had on their statement of faith? Do you want me to read that out? Sure, why not? Okay. Um, it reads, we believe that any form of homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, bestiality, incest, fornication, adultery, and pornography are sinful perversions of God's gift of sex. <laughs> um, but apparently the JH Ranch in New Zealand has a very different um, statement of faith that doesn't reference any of that. Yeah, interesting. They cleaned it up or whitewashed it for a New Zealand audience, I guess. Mm. I haven't had a chance to take a look through um, the Wayback Machine to see if the Statement of Faith has changed or if they've always kept mm. it quite, you know, quite clean. Mm, right. Yes. Okay. So uh, you recommend the book? Uh End times. I'm enjoying it so far. I'll be writing a full review once I have it finished. Mm, very good. I think I think if you are a fan of both um, being a like a you know have if you've had the youth group experience and you're traumatized <laughs> by it, but you're also interested in mining and uh, geology, end times is the book for you. Okay. <laughs> wow, to have had both of those experiences sounds <laughs> pretty pretty fringe crossover there. Well, apparently Rebecca Priestley and her friend would be are the two people who had this really niche experience. So maybe not so niche. Okay. It's not a solo experience. It's not a one of a kind. It's a two of a kind. Well, I certainly had a youth group experience when I was a teenager, but I'm not sure whether I was traumatized by it. But I think I asked too many awkward questions. <laughs> uh yeah, but then again, I suppose as a dude, you just have to cut your hair. Whereas when you're a girl and you're going through youth groups like that. Or really strict youth groups, you know, it's like you have to change the way you dress, the way you look. You have to grow out your hair. You have to wear, you no longer can wear short skirts or you show your shoulders. Mm, right. Fun. Mm -hmm. uh, should we move on to um, to Jim Humble? This this came as a shock to me. I, I'm just surprised it wasn't more widely reported or maybe I just completely missed it. But what's up with Jim Humble? Ah, uh, well, Jim Humble seems to have taken a tumble off this mortal coil. He's no longer with us. As oh, of last dear. year. 
Yeah, and um, yeah, it was remarkably underreported. Um, yeah. You know, given that this guy had been around for ages, well, um, you know, we're all terribly afraid of chemicals, and yet he had persuaded so many people to ingest this miracle mineral solution, which is effectively bleach, um, purported to um, cure whatever ails you, and then um, suddenly he was gone. Wow. So it, it didn't cure what ailed him then, I guess, in the end. Well, he was pretty ancient. He was about 96 or something. He, you know, he, he was no spring chicken. Um, okay, so maybe then, he is a good advert for it then. Yeah, maybe. maybe perhaps been he'd taking always it been to... taking a placebo. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably taking the saline. <laughs> One thing I was interested in, Louise, was that in your article about Jim and our, our local bleached nonsense was that he seems to have kind of like given up on it near the end he renounced bleach is that right well yeah he kind of he admitted that um that it didn't do what he said it did and and then he he retreated to mexico i mean you know who knows what his mental state was towards the end um you know in his 90s but um it was interesting that he seemed to back down on on what he'd been um claiming all these years yeah, I wonder whether maybe that was for legal reasons or something. Well, I suspect it was for legal reasons that he was in Mexico, um, <laughs> away from the tentacles of the USA law. Um, good point, actually. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it could have been a mixture of things. It could have been some sort of de degenerative issues to do with his advanced age. And, um, it, but, yeah, Um I mean that—that's the thing. Um, you know, promoters of of all sorts of pseudoscience um, and conspiracy theories. It's it's unusual for them to back down, which is why it was interesting that you know Craig's book review of how minds change. Um, it was notable that the guy's mind changed. Mm. I, somehow, I don't think that Jim Humble's mind changed, but I suspect that other people had got in on his patch, and and um, he probably just thought, oh, well, you know, let's just uh, hop foot it to Mexico and live out my days in some sort of comfort. It, it, um, I mean, it always seemed to be a scam, though, didn't it? I mean, setting up a the Genesis Two Church of Health and Healing, um, obviously that was a cynical um, means of avoiding tax. Um, and who knows whether he actually really believed it. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it the did. bleach the sacrament of the church as yeah. well as a way but, of getting away with it? But it's also, you know, I think there's some rumors that Jim Humble was a former Scientologist. So the idea of starting a church is not an original one because we know L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard started a church. <laughs> also because they thought he'd be getting tax breaks. Yeah. So but Louise, you're... Oh, go on. oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go on. You go on. I was going to say, you also looked into um, Roger Blake and his continuing shenanigans. Bronwyn had looked into it and his gardens and things, but he's still causing issues in the courts by the looks of it. Oh, Roger Water Gardens, yeah, yeah continued shenanigans and um, ever more ridiculous. Um, one of the ones that I didn't actually report in the story, but which I quite liked um, you know, from a humorous point of view, was that he, at one stage, he insisted on referring to the judge by his first name, calling him Brett. And the, the judge said, you know, would you mind, in my court, you call me Your Honour, or whatever whatever we call judges. I've never been in court in that sense. Um, and, um, yeah, he insisted on calling him Brett. He said, no, I'm sorry, Brett. Um, yeah, I'll just call you Brett. <laughs> um, and, of course, he, he wouldn't go into the dock. 
and uh, and there was one one notable occasion where he actually didn't even bother to attend his own hearing, his own. So yeah, um, totally obtuse and a really good example of the just the sheer madness of this sovereign citizen movement. It's it's nuts and um, the 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 pseudo legalese that that it's based on. Um, most mm. of which is incredibly illiterate. I mean, it's, it seems to be cutting and pasting from all sorts of uh, ancient documents, or including apparently the Magna Carta, um, <laughs> in order to justify not being, you know, not wanting to pay rates and uh, you know generally be a, an upstanding member of society. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think Roger Water Gardens is a good example of that, and um, I hope he enjoyed his prison dinner. Mm-hmm. But what I think what's weird about the sovereign citizen movement is it, it seems like no matter how often it's slapped down in court and the judges have none of it, it doesn't seem to be stopping this thing from becoming more popular. Like more people keep trying it out, despite the fact it obviously doesn't work. It just seems to sound more and more nutty every time. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 just the phrases that they scrawl across their rates bills make absolutely no sense. Um, it, it, it's just words. So it's just strange mangling of words, um, and ultimately, um, councils are going to come after these people. There's one woman, um, I can't uh, carry somebody, Kerry, um, yeah. who now owes about ten thousand dollars in rates. Well, you know, um, the council isn't going to write her. Write, well, they're not going to write. They might write her off, but they might. They're not going to write off the rates. Mm. No, they can sell you property <laughs> in order to recover the rates eventually. And that yeah, that. Exactly. That thing about the legal wording, I'm so fascinated by it, you know, the way they try and word things in a certain way they might have seen in an old legal document. Certain things are capitalized. There's weird punctuation with dashes and stuff. And then, uh, you know, mention of maritime law and things like this. And like the idea that this somehow magically absolves you of being responsible. It's very strange. Yeah, and it's um, it's really sort of um, starting to sort of go down new roads. Uh, they're refusing to register their babies, you know, the births of their children, um, you know, which ultimately could have some quite serious consequences. Um, and certainly they don't like registering their dogs, um, you know, well, and, and so obviously that means that they don't microchip them either. So if they lose their dogs, well, you know, good luck being reunited. Um, but you know the the question is how far will they go? It's it, it's crazy, but it seems to be gaining quite a bit of traction. And we've got these pseudo sheriffs who are cruising around in their pseudo sheriff cars, in their pseudo uniforms, and uh, it's it's funny. I mean, it's Keystone Cops, but it but it it's kind of got serious potential ramifications as well. Yeah. I think also uh, the, the way the media reports it sometimes, they're treated as essentially a novelty and treated as a bit of a joke story when it probably needs to be much more serious that these people are just not um, making any sense and there is no no uh, positive outcome of taking this sort of approach if you're hauled into court. Mm-hmm. That's a Good point. I, I guess there's probably not too much distance between our current sheriffs and, uh, let's say, the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or something like that. You know, a few more years of organisation and getting angry at the government, and we might be looking at some people that are seriously thinking of causing problems for government. Mm. I don't even Indeed. think it's a few years away. I, I feel that this is a very volatile sort of situation and that, you know, that, that there's some pretty 
unusual people <laughs> working away at these theories. And, and um, yeah, I think that we should watch this this space. And I think, too, that the, uh, that the courts need to come down and, and be a bit more firm about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to harp on about the US situation, but you're certainly seeing the effects of propaganda playing out in the in the US with all the all the junk that uh, Donald Trump is currently trying to put out about about his predicament and how he should be immune from prosecution and all that sort of stuff. Ah, sigh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mark, you have been. Uh, Targeted by a pred- pred- predate, you've been predated, have you? Predated, yes, predated. <laughs> Someone thought I was older than I am. Is that what being predated is? <laughs> no, uh, not in that sense. Yeah, so I I have been spammed for years now by predatory journals. Um, so a predatory journal, for anybody not in the know, is kind of like in academia, there's a bunch of journals that publish articles and a bunch of academics that are fighting to get their journals published. And with the rise of the internet and other technologies, some unscrupulous people have realized that academics are clamoring enough to be published that actually sometimes they won't look so carefully at how good the journal is and sometimes they'll even pay good money to have their article published just so they can say it was published in a journal and so there are journals that are taking advantage of this to the extent that there's no due diligence there's no effort to make anything decent a lot of these you know they're not even printed out physically it's just like electronic only but at least the academic can say that the work that they did was published even though it was published somewhere trashy now in order to keep this going obviously these predatory journals need to keep finding a people who want to publish which involves spamming and b people who are willing to do some kind of reviewing um and presumably the reviewing they're looking for is not too rigorous because i'm guessing a bunch of these um studies articles papers that need to be reviewed probably wouldn't pass peer review in a decent journal but A few years ago, I wrote a letter to the New Zealand Medical Journal, and at that point, I ended up on some kind of spam list for these predatory journals that my name on a letter in a journal, not even a paper or anything, this is just a letter kind of to the letters to the editor. That's enough that basically maybe every week or two, I get an email um, saying, Dear Dr. Honeychurch, and I'm not a doctor, um, given your expertise in the field there is no field that these journals are covering that possibly is part of my expertise um we would love to have you review this article now i've always ignored it because i know it's spam and i know these journals are horrible but the one that came through my email recently was for an article about essential oils and i just thought i'd have a little bit of fun with this one that you know it's i'm a skeptic and here i am being asked to review something totally unabashedly pseudoscientific the idea that these essential oils can help and in this case it was with um stress and other mental health conditions um and I didn't want to waste too much time, but I wanted to give a decent response. So I did what anybody would do these days. And I jumped onto GPT and I just basically said, here's the title of the um, the study I've been asked to review. Please write a response saying that I would like to review it and inject as many 
um, essential oil puns as you can, basically. As much aromatherapy punning. And it wrote me a very pun-heavy response, which to any casual reader, you'd look at it and go, well, this guy's joking. He obviously doesn't really want to review. So I sent that in and immediately was accepted. Um, and then I had radio silence. And this is where the story gets a little bit sad because it went quiet and I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And then when I emailed them, they said that unfortunately they already had enough reviewers and I didn't get to go ahead with the review. But I am very keen to do this again. I am very keen to get GPT to write another snarky pun filled response. And this time I'm going to try and make sure I can write it all the way to the point where I become a reviewer for some sham journal for some badly written article and i will probably give them both barrels when i do get to write about the study and and talk about how much nonsense it is <laughs> so what what i mean reading your article in the newsletter it seems like you didn't actually get monetarily compensated for this but you got some sort of bogus points out of it by I reviewing yeah, I didn't even pay much attention to what it was offering, but there seems to be some point system. So a hundred points that can be used for buying any Bentham science content. Um, and I'd get a reviewer certificate. Now, the certificate might be nice. You know, if it looks good, I might print it out and put it next to my Eastern Lightning certificate for uh, passing the level three course. I, that I, could I, be fun. I, I guess I wonder in terms of some countries where this sort of activity, your review committee is stuff that you can put on your CV, which helps make you become more competitive on the job market than having a reviewer certificate is quite it's gonna be quite important but have you heard of predatory conferences that's where the big money is um oh, wow the wikipedia, yes, page, I... the wikipedia page is a really good story that actually involves a new zealander from Ca university of canterbury oh okay do, do you think the New Zealand Skeptics Conference in Auckland this year could be a predatory conference. <laughs> well, it, so far it seems that what a predatory conference does, they have what the big money maker is that they don't offer refunds. Mm -hmm. They'll, you know, they'll they'll go off and they'll troll the entire internet. They'll offer people invitations to come to such like there's certain conferences that are definitely predatory conferences. Um, they have there's something unique about their name, and you know, it doesn't have to be a great. Um, abstract that you send, it gets accepted really quickly, and then they'll send the person about a $2,000 bill. So if you don't know what's going on, you may just send them $2,000. <laughs> Some people just do, like the universities can, or they can use it from their grants, and then the conference is cancelled. Mm, right, and no and refunds. No refund. Right. Yeah, so the story, um, shall I just read from the Wikipedia page regarding the University of Canterbury academic, or is that going to be plagiarism? <laughs> <laughs> oh i like we have, that we have high standards in this podcast okay we, we will you be revisiting sorry we'll be revisiting plagiarism in the next month or two i will definitely be writing about plagiarism soon because it's a it's a topic that's dear to my heart and is currently relevant to new zealand mm. well then what i'll do i'll paraphrase then but yes go to the wikipedia page on predatory conferences but um the person involved was uh, christoph Bartnick, who was an associate professor of information technology at the University of Canterbury. And this was about 2016. He was invited to a conference that was organized by a well-known predatory conference off, um, organizer called OMIX, O-M-I-C. And yeah, he was, you know, invited to a conference on atomic and nuclear physics in 2016, despite having little knowledge on the topic. So he wrote this uh 500 plus word abstract that included good and great about 28 times. 
um, under a fake name. And yeah, it got accepted. And then he was given a bill for it. Then he was given an invoice of like over like over a thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I mean that that sort of thing is right for the picking, isn't it? Because if you're an academic, you're not going to personally put your hand in your pocket to pay that money. You're just going to forward that invoice onto your institution, and they will pay it. Mm. Or generally. if you're a PhD student and you're like you're desperate and no, and you don't really have maybe say your good guidance or a good supervision team to tell you that. Oh yeah, no, don't don't bother with this. Then yeah, you might if you're in a more disadvantaged country, or as I said, you don't have a good supervision relationship. Then yeah, you may be more likely to pull out or go into a little bit of debt to go to this conference that you think is the World Congress or the World Academy of. Mm. And what do they what do they actually say that the money is to be paid for? I mean, what are they putting on the invoice? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they're putting on the invoice. I just know that a lot of these conferences are advertised with um, ac- like prominent academics who actually aren't attending. Right. So it's sort of, it's sort of presented that yeah, yeah, you know, here's your Richard you know, Dawkins will be there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, here's here's your opportunity to hobnob and be at this conference with you know prominent figures in this field, and they're mm. not there. If the conference right. even goes ahead. Sounds very similar to the sort of pro former invoicing scams for advertising that businesses are sometimes targeted with. Mm. And they put ads in these bogus magazines or whatever that may not even get printed. Uh, yeah, the idea we'll we'll put you in our compendium of companies and mm. you just have to pay us 500 bucks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've received emails like that. They, like your company has been selected as one of the top ten providers in this space in 2023, and uh, we can put you in this journal and uh, just pay us two thousand dollars US. And yeah, one of our um, Wellington skeptics and the pub members has recently had an email like that, but he's won an award. Um, he's like one of the top entrepreneurs of the year, <laughs> and if only he pays them like fifteen hundred dollars, they will build him a nice media profile, and then he can get the award. Yeah, flattery Same will be everywhere. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly how they're doing it. Make you feel good, and you'll hopefully pay the money. Well. I guess we shouldn't criticize these people too much because we really need to be kind to them, don't we? <laughs> That's a segue and don't a half. Louise. Played. <laughs> That's your cue, Louise. It is my cue. <laughs> <They're talking about laughs> kindness. <laughs> I have been thinking that in the current situation where we've got conspiracy upon conspiracy and um you know, the, the whole situation's getting pretty febrile because, um, you know, none of these conspiracies are coming to fruition. And there are so many of them piled one on top of the other now. Um, and we had that brief moment where we thought that um, Barry Young was going to provide something, you know, groundbreaking and, and earth shattering. Did we really <laughs> think that he was going and to provide turned, something? No, oh, we I didn't. Know, we but, did. I, but I think some of us, you know, some people did hope that it would. Uh, mm-hmm. turned out to be an incredibly damp split. Um, <laughs> but there is, yeah, there is an incredibly, as I say, an incredibly febrile sort of, um, you know, um, sense out there and um, a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger building up, more so than I think I've seen for a long time. Um, because, and then we, if once we get tired of the vaccine, then, you know, suddenly 
um, chemtrails are a thing again. So chemtrails are back with a vengeance. And um, I noticed today that apparently uh, last year was one of the cloudiest years on record. So, of course, well, that's going to be because the government was busy organising Cyclone Gabriel <laughs> in the Auckland floods. Um, so how do we engage with these people or do we engage with them? Do we bother at all? Um, and I had quite a funny experience uh, because I recently joined the local historic society and I'm reasonably historic, but these people are all at least three decades, decades older than I am. <laughs> and in fact, at their uh, Christmas function, six of them were awarded bouquets for turning 90 in the previous year. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, I, I've offered to be the secretary because I'm a young woman who knows quite a bit about those computer machines, but actually I don't. <laughs> Luckily, I have an IT manager at home. Um, <laughs> but I got in this conversation with this this lady, and we'll call her Jane. And um, she was telling me she she had had a really sad life. Some terrible things had happened to her. She'd lost her money, and both her children had terrible illnesses, and so on. And she said, and I've been sick myself. I've been sick myself for about the last eight years. And I said, oh, that's terrible. And she said, yeah. Um, but she said, I know what it is now. And I said, she said, oh, it's long COVID. <laughs> for eight years. <laughs> no. That's interesting. You've had long COVID for eight years and the rest of us have only had short COVID for four. She said, no, no, well, I went to my doctor you know, and I said, no, I, I realise now that what I've had is long COVID. And I said, well, um, what did your doctor say? And she said, oh, oh, he said, well, Jane, you must have been one of the first people in the world to have long COVID. And she said, no, I'm so proud because I really think that I probably am. <laughs> oh, that's a polite doctor. <laughs> I know. So The, the sarcasm like was that. lost on her. <laughs> I know. But what was I going to say? Was I going to sit there and say, well, come on, Jane, you know, get real. You know, we've only had COVID for four years. How did you have long COVID for all that time? No, because that's just mean. You know, she's a nice lady. She's elderly. She's found, a, you know, a, a reason for what's been ailing her. But in many cases, it's it's not that simple. And... Yeah. um being kind to a lot of these people who are espousing such extreme views online, um, well, it isn't easy. And at our Skeptics Conference in Dunedin in November, um, we had um, Melissa from Thinking, Thinking is, what, remind power, me, Thinking Power. Power, yes, yes. Melanie. And Susan, Wikipedia <laughs> and Trisha. Um, and I did notice that in both of their presentations, um, you know, the sense of being kind came through because really, um, should we be stoking that anger? It's not as easy as engaging with these people because if I go online and, and I tend, I just tend not to anymore. Um, because if I say, oh, so and so, I understand why you feel that, you know, Jacinda Ardern wanted to, you know, wipe you out or wipe out the country or whatever it was. Um, I'm not going to get anywhere, am I? So, no. you know, where, where, where do we go? How far do we engage? And and what can we say? I think, I think it's a really interesting now. question. I, I think a lot of it's to do with context, right? I, I What I find is that 
often one-on-one conversations when you're just talking with someone that has a a mistaken view of something, I think you're unlikely to change their mind. I think the best you can do is be kind, but also let them know that you disagree and let them know that if they ever want to talk to you about it, they are welcome to, but not forcing people into it. But I think there's a lot of situations where, uh, especially when people are doing damage, where it's not so much the person that's got the bad view that you're interested in, it's the audience. If you have an audience, if there are other people who are reading this conversation or listening in, I think often when I do get into an argument, it's to do with those people. It's letting those other people know what the truth is and where science stands on a matter. And the person who actually has the bad view, I'm not too worried about them and and whether I'm going to convert them because, as you say, it's fairly unlikely, but it's the other people in that conversation. Those might be savable, and those are the ones I'd be more interested in. Hmm. I think sometimes uh, disagreement, though, is perceived as hate. That's um, that's a problem. Mm, if you actually, I guess it could uh, be, yeah. A state that you you don't agree with their interpretation of something, sometimes that is seen as attacking, which is unfortunate. And of course, it causes them to double down and 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 it reinforces their feeling of victimhood. You know, and and victimhood is is at the heart of so many conspiracy theories. It, it it is that people perceive themselves to be victims of all sorts of nefarious organizations and states and leaders and 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 when we disagree with them, it it, it just sort of reinforces that that sense in them. Mm. But not disagreeing with them, I guess, allows them the space to just keep going unabashed, which we also don't want to do. They need to be challenged in some sense, I guess. Um, Otherwise, they're never going to know that they're wrong. Um, But yes, just directly challenging them is probably likely to make them more entrenched. Yeah, I guess there there are certain categories of beliefs that it's hard to see where the where there is that grievance. So if 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 I'm, say, talking to somebody who's a creationist, that is, I think, more of an example of motivated reasoning than it is a grievance-based belief. Um, I, I guess they could... They could interpret it as saying, okay, well, um, all the world is conspiring against uh, the belief in Jesus um, because they don't want to be constrained by uh, not being able to live a sinful life. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I, I had an argument. Part of the conversation with the Mormons this afternoon was an argument about gay people. And, you know, one of the points that they came out with was the idea that they who am I to try and restrict their freedom to discriminate? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's a horrible argument, but it's one you hear a lot that, you know, this is their religious freedom. They should be allowed to discriminate against gay people. They should be able to restrict gay people's access to tax breaks and other things that heterosexual married couples do get um, because this is their religious freedom. And I, yeah, I can't cope with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've seen memes about her saying that uh, your your religious book tells you how to be- behave, not me. <laughs> yeah, but I think beyond like the continuation of my audience argument, like when I do my 
activism when it comes to, let's say, somebody who's selling a pseudoscientific treatment. Again, I'm, I'm not thinking about the person that's selling it. I'm not thinking about whether they will become more entrenched in their views that color therapy can treat cancer. My thoughts are, oh, my thoughts are for the people who might actually get duped by it and stop going to the doctor and instead pay a color therapist to treat their cancer. It's those potential victims who might get sucked in where there are real life consequences that, you know, and the fact that I might cause someone to believe in color, color therapy even more, who's a believer, that's a secondary concern to the people who are most likely to become victims. Mm. And of course, with somebody selling a product, they have that financial motivation to believe in uh, what they're promoting. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And I did have a case with a family member oh, 30 years ago. Um, there was a guy in Rotorua who was um, promoting a machine. I think he called it a quantum booster. Mark, I'm not sure if you were around in those days, but um, some of you... Um, uh, Greg, you might remember Liam Williams Holloway, yes. who was a little boy. Yeah, that was yes. the Rife machine. Yeah, well, it, yeah, they, yeah, this guy called it the quantum booster. And he sold it to a close relative of mine and talked her out of um, having chemotherapy. And she yeah. had, a, you know, a reasonably early on case of bowel cancer that she should have survived. Oh, um, and didn't. And didn't. No, she didn't. Oh, she wow. died at 56. And... Um, it wasn't so easy that, you know, in those days we didn't really have, well, the internet was very, very new. And so, um, you know, my issue was to try and talk to her about it, to say to her, well, you know, what this man's saying to you isn't true. But obviously in those days I, I didn't have access to a lot to back me up. Um, mm. But I also didn't really have easy access either to go to him and say, well, you know, what, you, what you're doing is, you know, it, it's, you know, you're, you're ripping her off and, and you're lying. Um, mm. So, I mean, you know, those, those sorts of um, dilemmas, you know, those issues, you know, they've they've always been around. But I'm just not that sure that we're we're necessarily better equipped to cope uh, cope with them, even now with an you know enhanced technology. And I think it's easy. I mean, I think a lot of the places that I see unkindness is online, especially Facebook and maybe Twitter as well. Um, you know, when it's when it's just a comment and you don't really know a person, it looks like for a lot of people, it's very easy just to get angry quite quickly and get abusive quite quickly. And conversations can devolve like within minutes online. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. And certainly whenever we're online, it, it would make sense for us as skeptics to Always be polite, you know, no matter how forceful we have to be with no, you're wrong. We should always deliver that message in a polite way, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting, you know, part of, of, of modern life. And, and it's something that's it's very pervasive now. It's, it's part and parcel of everyday life all the time for a lot of people. Mm. And a lot of these people are, are quite literally, um, they're adopting a conspiratorial lifestyle. In some cases, they're becoming, you know, as in this gun, a professional conspiracy theorist, you know. And, and I noticed that she initially objected to, to being labelled as that by the media, uh, but now takes it as a, a badge of honour. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's almost like a religion. Mm. 
But yeah, so again with Liz Garnett, you know, you could almost say that Liz Garnett is probably beyond saving, right? If she's going to be saved, she's probably going to save herself. I can't imagine, no matter how kind we are to her, that it's going to make an iota of difference. But the people that might be considering following her, I think those are the people that we need to be concerned about. And that's that's where our thought should be. How do we how do we make sure that we're not alienating those people? Yeah, unfortunately, we can't all go on to New Zealand loyal and, and post, you know, um, friendly, polite uh, rejoinders to some of their claims. <laughs> I don't think that would get us very far or no. enhance our popularity. No, e- as an and organization. often. E- even being polite, often it's not enough. Like when I when I kind of half accidentally f- sent a friend request to Damien Dement a couple of weeks ago, I tried to be as polite as I could when he questioned me, why do you want to be my friend on Facebook? Didn't take him long before he just blocked me that, you know, like at no point was I rude to him. At no point did I, I try and seriously challenge him. I only just started my conversation and very quickly he hit the block button. I mean, you mentioned Brit Hermes earlier in the podcast. And um, what was her story then? You know, as you said, she wasn't a big rah, rah, rah cheerleader of homeopathy. But nonetheless, she probably still spent a lot of money to get her education. Well, that was she, that was the big issue that she actually did spend all this money. She invested all this money. In, and then she came to the realization that actually it's all bullshit. And oh, my God, I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for this um, but, but worthless... Where- qualification yeah. so in in practice so basically the way it happened was through her education she had a lot of questions that weren't being answered but she always put it off from what i remember and when it's okay when i get into the industry it'll all become clearer and i'll be able to talk to actual professionals and then she started working as a naturopath and apparently it was even worse there was even more hand-waving excuses and a, a lack of desire to explain anything properly and that's where the realization came not long after she got into actually being a a naturopath like earning money it didn't take long before she was like oh my god it's all a house of cards there is not no science underpinning this so there's nobody sort of on the other side of the coin you're saying who who had information for her to access or to have for her to have that conversation with then i i I think I don't know that she did find anyone who was questioning. You know, I'd imagine for a lot of people who are naturopaths, you don't really want to go out. But from what I can remember of Brit, like she just had a naturally searching mind. You know, she was asking a lot of questions and a lot of it was just being pushed off. And I think she just got to breaking point where people kept trying to push things off. And Mm -hmm. she was like, well, hang on a minute. Like nobody anywhere seems to be able to answer these questions. Hmm. But yeah, and I think ethically, I can kind of understand that, you know, there's not so much of a problem while you're not making money out of something nonsense. But as soon as you start profiting from it, ethically, that that's a big divide there. Right. As soon as you're profiting, you really have to be sure that what you're doing is true. Yeah. Um, and I guess in the example of Brit Hermes, she was essentially became a skeptic celebrity because she had um abandoned natu- naturopathy and and sort of started exposing it but there's only so many of those people that can actually exist in the world if there were a thousand naturopaths who came out and started exposing uh, naturopathy for what it is there wouldn't be that sort of c- celebrity associated with it and um it re- it's really not a scalable solution mm. is it 
but but she's also the I think you know one of the few that does it loudly often when people learn that they've made a mistake and they've dedicated a portion of their life to yeah. something that's not true they, they just go very quietly <laughs> they just disappear go and find a new career and get on with it whereas Brit was willing to stand up and speak up and and talk about how wrong it was mm. we need more Brits in the world yeah, but I mean, people like Brit, and as you say, uh, Louise, Melanie, and and Susan, they they do come across very kindly. At the same time, you look at how ruthlessly Susan goes after psychics, you know, calling them grief vampires and setting up stings that they absolutely hate. She is vicious when she needs to be. When she sees someone taking advantage of others, she does not hold her punches. Uh, no, and that's great. That's how we need to be. And there, there is that distinction there between the people who are making money out of it, who are, it would seem know that they are a scammer, but yet they're still perpetuating that onto uh, a gullible public, I guess. Yeah, and and I guess that that's the thing too. I mean, yes, I mean Susan can do it because she's very. Um, you know, well spoken and expresses herself really well. She can sort of do it with a velvet glove and still make it incredibly um, effective. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's probably and even the, the, you know the key. Yeah. Even the times when she's polite to the people that don't like what she's hearing, they see it as abuse. They see it as her being rude, even when it's really kind. Uh, you know, how dare you insult Thomas John, the psychic, you know, by pointing out his flaws and where he's cheated. You're being mean to him. Uh, and it's like, no, she's not being mean. She's just being honest and pointing out where he's being a scammer. I guess there's a fine line between coming across as a patronising and condescending, um, and being uh, being fake kind. I guess. Um, <laughs> I guess yeah, it's, maybe depending there's, there's upon... some clever, clever in between place that that Susan's found. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to be respectful. Um, you know, mm. my late mother was having Bowen therapy on her hip because she was dying of a horrible um, neurological condition and quite apart from the fact that her legs weren't working anymore and her arms weren't working and she was having trouble speaking her hip was sore and she went to have this Bowen therapy and I got very cross and said you know really mum you know this woman's ripping you off and so on and you know she turned to me with that look you know that only and only a mother can have and she said Louise I expect you to respect me you know mm. I, my body's just falling apart um and she was totally still, um, to you know, completely intellectually fine. And she said, at least if I feel that this woman's making my hip feel a bit better, then please respect that. What's hard? <laughs> so I was angry that this woman, and she said, don't worry, she only charges $25. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, no, but that's, you know, that's a hard one. Yeah. It is. I mean, you know, $25 is a good deal. Um, but at the same time, it's $25 that really shouldn't be spent. And when it's a loved one who you see being conned by someone who's selling a false bill of goods, it is harder. It, you really want to save them, even though maybe they don't want to be saved. She really believed that it made her hip feel better. And she was a nurse with 60 years experience. And <laughs> wow. yeah, so what do you do? They're dying. They're uncomfortable. She was about to have her COVID vaccine in, in Southland and dropped dead anyway, according to Barry Young. So, 
And, you know, I'm an atheist, they're dead. I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't think she's looking down saying, please don't use my example. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. And it, and it does cause a lot of people, I think, to have some very conflicted feelings. Yeah. And mm. I, I think sometimes the kindest thing you can do is just not have that argument, right? Is just to go, no, I'm not doing it today. Better off that I have a family member that's talking to me than that I push this issue too far. And that sometimes that's hard to do. It's hard to step away. I think there's a lot yeah. of families now that do have family members who are down, you know, down the rabbit hole. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's making a lot of Kiwi Christmases, uh, you know, pretty difficult. Yeah, yeah. I I have a work colleague who um, he asked to have a chat with me a year and a half, two years ago now, because his mother has fallen down the rabbit hole, and his mum started talking about how you know it's it's going to be really sad if I can't see my grandson again. And and my work colleague was like, well, why? Why why would you not see your grandson again? It's like, well, if you get vaccinated, I, I can't have you in the house because you'll be shedding and I can't have someone shedding in my house. And so, you know, it's going to be really sad that I'll never see my grandson. And that kind of guilting. And you just, you just want to scream in someone's face when they're that wrong, that, you know, that they are causing the problem. They are the cause of the issue. But yeah, my advice was, look, honestly, oftentimes with with family like this especially close family you just let it go you just don't say anything and hope that they stop bringing it up and and just let sleeping dogs lie and hope that the relationship repairs yeah it's a difficult one isn't it it's certainly better to keep the lines of communication open than to, to alienate a family member i think Hmm. Yeah, it's a difficult situation, and and I just don't see it getting any easier in you know in the next little while. Yeah, um, and certainly, certainly, when I looked at the results of the last election, and you know the number of people that had voted for fringe parties who beliefs are very unskeptical. Like we had one percent plus who were conspiracy, and then maybe two, three percent or more who were very evangelical Christian, you know, to the extent of wanting to push their Christian beliefs on the entire country. I mean, we're talking five, ten percent of voters in this country probably overall have quite extreme views that aren't evidence based. So there are a lot of people out there who really don't align with scientific thinking with skeptical thinking um it's a good portion of the population and ironically mm. the many freedom parties or you know the many variations on the freedom parties and and the freedom alliances that we have um they all want to push their views on the rest of the country they are a very small percentage and, <laughs> and they don't like the tyrannical governments we've got now they just want to impose their own even more tyrannical governments yeah, there is a huge irony there that definitely that, yeah, when, when you read their actual manifestos, it is it is we need the freedom to impose our beliefs on everybody else. And it's <laughs> oh, my God, they they really don't see that irony. It just it totally escapes them. Yeah. Well, I think is that, yeah, Liz, Liz Gunn was probably the, yeah, the, the primary one there. And um, it's she seems to be having a lizardication at the moment. But, um, I, you know, I don't think that problem's gone away. No, she's already gearing for the next election. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how she's doing in three years, but she certainly hasn't given him. You know, we lost Billy. He disappeared. I don't know what's going to happen with um, Gray now, whether she's going to carry on going. Um, and Tamaki, I don't know. I don't think his political aspirations are ever going to disappear. Yeah. Well, Sue so, so Gray does, far, is he? No, Sue Gray does seem to have, have, have 
shrivel back into the woodwork a bit. I think maybe she got scared by the the complaints against her, and although she didn't actually get sanctioned by the law society, probably the process of actually going through that tribunal maybe made her pull her head in a little bit. I think. Maybe. I wonder how much money she's making off of this political career that she's picked up, though. I mean, you know, if that's if that's approaching what she'd earn actually being a practicing lawyer. Well, like when when was she last actually a practicing lawyer? I wonder, I guess it's not too long ago, is it? She did the whole thing about the vaccine rollout. That was her, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. She was representing those freedom groups in court. But it, mm. she doesn't take on a lot of cases. It seems to be like a few celebrity cases that I don't know how much money that makes her, whether they're yeah. paying her a lot of money for I mean, these. I mean, what, I, what I'm meaning is she seems to be less outspoken now, whereas yeah. back in during the COVID times, she was sort of vocally saying, well, this, this teenage girl died because she had the vaccine or whatever, that sort of thing. I don't Maybe maybe my algorithms aren't feeding those things to me anymore, and she's still saying that sort of stuff, but it doesn't seem that <laughs> she is. I guess I'm kind of interested that, you know, obviously surgeries have continued, and we keep on having surgeries every day, or the people in New Zealand keep on having surgeries every day. Why aren't we hearing more about the blood supply, about the vaccinated blood supply? <laughs> oh, yes. no, you're not going to bring up baby W. <laughs> <gasps> Must be Todd the W by now, surely. Must be, surely. Yes, uh, indeed. That was an absolute shocker. That was think, absolutely terrible. And there might even be like two rival efforts to set up an unvaccinated blood bank in this country. Presumably neither has got anywhere, probably beyond fundraising. I imagine they've both managed to take money from people, but I'm guessing neither of them has actually made any inroads into starting up an actual service. Well, one of them, wasn't one of them associated with, with Billy TK? And one he, of them was the Freedom Village Billy TK weirdness, yeah. Mm. So they managed to take money, but not blood. <laughs> uh, well, actually, um, I just read recently, and, and I'm sure that it's just conjecture, but that there is a move towards having uh, a, a bank of unvaccinated sperm for surrogate parents. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, Maybe dear. that's a, a rabbit hole we don't want to go down at the moment. No. <sighs> Right. Well, maybe we should resolve in our New Year's resolutions to be kind to people, at least in the first instance. <laughs> so we can Definitely. no longer bear it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I suppose that's it. Lead with kindness and see what you get back. Right. Mm. So shall we uh, move on to what's happening in the community? Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, South Islanders. Um, currently, no listings for a Dunedin Skeptics in the pub in the next two weeks, but hopefully we'll have uh, something for either late January, early February when we come back in two weeks' time. Moving on to Wellington, this Friday, January the 12th at 6 p.m., we have our traditional Skeptics in the pub inside the Intercontinental, Inter Intercontinental Hotel on 2 Gray Street, inside the Intercontinental Hotel at the Lobby Lounge. I finally spit that out. Um, no, you didn't. You still can't say Intercontinental properly. Try it. Inter intercontinental. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. Well played. Well, that was a bit of a diphthong in there. <laughs> but anyways, um, it's usually a good crowd. There's, you know, great drinks, decent food, good conversation. So um, join us. And then on the 18th, we have Science-Based 
healthcare activism in the pub. Now that's going to be at the Fork and Brewer, also at 6 p.m. Mark, do you want to tell maybe a first-time listener what to expect that they show up to this meetup? Yeah, absolutely. If you come next Thursday to the Fork and Brewer in Wellington at 6 p.m., um, we will be complaining. I don't know what we'll be complaining about this time, but we'll be complaining about something to advertising standards or similar. And if you turn up for the first time and submit a complaint, you get a free pint. Sounds like a good deal. It's not bad, is it? Like half an hour of your effort for a pint? Uh, it's an okay deal now. It's not great. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Auckland's Skeptics in the Pub. We had our uh, first one of the year last night. We had 18 people turn up. Oh, so nice crowd. Quite a crowd. Yes. Um, and that's on on the first Tuesday in every month. But next month, the first Tuesday happens to be Waitangi Day, and so we're going to put it on the second Tuesday in the month. So that'll be the the uh, what's what six and seven? That must be thirteen. So yep. yes, the thirteenth of February, uh, which incidentally is my birthday. So I probably won't show up for that. Actually, you um, should do. Yeah. Well, everybody can wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> I guess. I guess everyone can yes. buy you pints. <sighs> yeah, get really, really drunk, and then let your right. Tesla drive you home. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> anyway, yes, that'll, that's when it'll be on. Okay, we're done. I guess we are. I, I have lots more to say, but we're going to have to leave it for another episode, I'm afraid. Right. Well, how long have we been going for? Going oh, for a while, haven't we? Well, we owe people, right? We we skipped the Christmas episode, so we owe them two hours. We're not even paying them in full. <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. Uh, well, we'll just have to spread out the repayments over the rest of the year. Are Sounds you, are, good. Are you, are you committing to longer episodes, Craig? Uh, longer episodes for you to edit? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All no right. cash you... checks with that mouth there, Craig. <laughs> you have been listening to the Year Now podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can send us an email to news or podcast at skeptics.nz. That's two separate email addresses. That's not news or podcast at skeptics.nz, <laughs> although that would probably get there anyway. <laughs> yeah. Podcast at skeptics.nz, please. Thank you. Very good. Awesome. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Kakite. See ya. And thank you, for Louise, for showing up and, and uh, joining us for the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Excellent. Yay. See you all in two weeks. Ta-ta.